It is my joy to be up here in front of you all and bringing God's word to you this morning. If, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name's Hunter, um, and I would love to meet you after this gathering and get to know you a little bit better. Um, but let's begin with a word of prayer before we jump in. Um, God, this is your word, and these are your people. Um, we are your people, and God, you have promised to transform us into the likeness of your son. Um, God, you've told us that that is your plan. Um, and so, God, I pray you do a wonderful work through even these verses uh, with these people where we are right now. And, God, that we would be a showcase people for you in all of your glory. Um, God, we would be zealous for, for doing good and, and for imitating Christ in all that we do. Um, God, I know that you can do this, and I, I pray you would do this today by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we come to the final verses in Titus's, or in the letter to Titus. Um, just four verses, verses 12 through 15. Um, this concludes a, a short series, a few months in this letter, uh, and this series has been titled The Trellis, um, God's Plan for His Church. Um, now if you have a Bible with you, a copy of God's Word, go ahead and flip open, find Titus 3, and go down to verse 12. Um, and while you're there, you might notice that the title says something like final remarks or closing comments or uh, final instructions and greeting, as my Bible says. Uh, maybe not the title that fills you with the most energy. I would venture to say that if you're the person that has a life verse, it probably didn't come from one of these four verses. Um, I would also venture to say that the last time your reading plan took you through Titus 3, if you journal, your journal note probably was not on verses 12 through 15. It was probably from the top of the chapter. Uh, these are the kind of verses that we really don't want to read out loud in front of others because they have names that we don't know how to pronounce, and so we'd rather the person beside us read them. Um, when we get to parts of Scripture like this, we sometimes wonder what to do with it. Um, the Old Testament, we, we definitely do this with when we get to Chronicles or any of the long sections on genealogies, but we get that here in the New Testament too sometimes, especially in Matthew 1. Um, we get to these lists of names, we get to these details that aren't doctrine, we get to these parts that um, aren't just dripping with, with glory that we think, and we wonder what to do with them. Um, some of you may even be wondering, why do these four verses weren't a whole sermon? Why weren't they just included in chapter 3 last week, and why didn't we just move on with our summer series this week? That's probably what we're all thinking. Um, but if we believe, I, I assume that most of you would not disagree with um, the statement in Scripture that all Scripture is profitable. I think all of you probably would agree with me on that. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training, and righteousness, and that includes verses 12 through 15. All Scripture is profitable. Um, so what profit do these verses have for you and for me? Well, really, I think that these four verses bring everything that Paul has been saying in Titus together. This is the bow at the end of the package. It brings every major theme he's been pushing together. And he gives them a gentle push to say, go do it. So it's the tie together, and it's the final push to go apply. Um, this is Paul's final instructions here are his final words on how to apply the entire letter to Titus. What do we do with this? Um, since this brings everything together, it might be helpful to maybe review where we've been. Um, some of you have been here since the start of, of this series. Some of you, this might be your first week. So let's review briefly where, where we've been in Titus and what we've already looked at. Um, well, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to Titus. At some point in the past, they had been doing missionary work on the island of Crete. They'd been planning churches, doing ministry, doing all the things that we love to do. And then Paul left. And he left Titus there um, in charge. He left them with, to continue the task that they had been doing, to continue building up leaders, to continue planting churches. Um, and he writes this letter now as a pastoral epistle to him to encourage him in that process and to address a few things. Uh, now this is a pastoral epistle in the sense that it's a very personal letter. It's, it's written to Titus, it, it's very personal, but it's not a private letter either. Um, it's a public letter. Every Christian on the island of Crete would be expected to know what this letter says. This is for everyone on the island of Crete who claims the name of Christ. Um, so what's the occasion for this letter? Well, it's false teachers, bad doctrine, bad practice. 
Um, false teachers are corrupting the Christians there. Um, and so their practice, what, how they're demonstrating their faith, their personal conduct, is not in accord with the doctrine they claim to believe. And everything, it just looks awful. Um, and so Paul's main thrust in the entirety of the Titus, in, in the entirety of the letter to Titus is this. Do good works. Make sure your conduct looks like the faith that you proclaim. Do good works. Now this is a very common subject and throughout the New Testament. This is not just treated here. This, and pretty much every letter in the New Testament, we, we get something on this topic. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not just that Crete needs to hear this. It's not just that a few Christians on Crete need to hear this. Every city, every church, every Christian in every town needs to hear this, that your practice must accord with your faith that you proclaim. But it's of particular need here on Crete because of maybe the nature of Crete. Um, you see, Crete had, had a reputation. Um, forgive the analogy, but they, they were kind of like the used car salesmen of the Greco-Roman world. They had a reputation of, uh, as Paul says, of being liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And he says, their own prophets say this about them. It's not just that we're looking in. They themselves know this. Um, but it might be easy to just get that snippet and move on and, and not think too much more about it. Um, the historian Polybius, writing about two centuries before Paul's time, I want to read some of what he says about the nature of people on Crete. What are Cretans like? What are they known for? Um, and I think you'll see the words that Paul quotes, that they're evil beasts, liars. You'll see it in greater detail. And you'll see just how enduring and ingrained this nature of theirs is. So writing about two centuries before Paul, he says, Cretans, nothing in their practice is commendable. Their laws go as far as possible in letting them acquire land to the extent of their power. Anything goes, basically. Money is held in such high honor with them that its acquisition is not only regarded as necessary, but as most honorable. Anything goes. So much, in fact, do sordid love of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world whose eyes in whose eyes no gain is distasteful. Anything goes. He talks about how due to this ingrained lust of wealth, they're always fighting, they're always bickering, they're always embroiled in public and personal conflict. They're always at civil war. They're always murdering. Um, they, they're just always fighting. And Cretans themselves regard this, he says, as immaterial. It's no big deal, it's just how it is. Anything goes. But even their fighting, they do dirty. They, they fight dirty too. Um, he talks about their warfare. He says, the Cretans, both by land and sea, are irresistible. In what? Their ambushes, their raids, their tricks played on the enemy, their night attacks, and all petty operations that they do, which require fraud. But they're cowardly and downhearted in person when you have to face them in, in the open field. In summary, Polybius writes, it would be impossible to find, except in a few instances, personal conduct more treacherous, or public policy more unjust than in Crete. This place is despicable, you could say. They indeed are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. In the same way that a, a damp basement just is the perfect environment for mold to grow, so Crete is the perfect place for false teachers who love shameful gain to thrive. This is the place where false teaching can go rampant. Um, and it's, it's tough ground for the gospel to grow on. And so personal conduct is a must. This is why Paul is so adamant. Good works must be present if you are proclaiming the truth of Christ. You cannot divorce the two. And so he gives a charge to Titus. He says, put things in order. Do this. In chapter one, he talks about leaders. He talks about the need for godly leaders, those who contrast the Cretan culture with their godly character. He knows that Christian leaders should look and act like Jesus because they lead the people to look and act like Jesus. What the leaders do, the, the people will follow in likewise character. Whereas Cretan culture is all about lies, Christian leaders are to be lovers of truth, those who, who can rightly divide the word of truth and love it and teach it. Instead of being lazy gluttons, they are to be above reproach. Um, 
They were to be self-controlled. Instead of evil beasts, they were to be lovers of good. He says, the church needs godly leaders, appoint them. In chapter two, he goes on to talk about relationships in the church. Every member of the church, he says, should care about godliness too, it's not just the leaders. The leaders need to be godly, they need to be doing good works, the people, everyone in the church needs to be doing good works. Everyone should be concerned with this as a top priority. You see, it's because the gospel is such a transformational message. For those who, have, who claim to have received this amazing good news that changes everything and not look changed, it does injustice to the message and it does dishonor to Christ. And so he says, mature disciples, they need to make and mature more disciples. Chapter three, all talks about public conduct. So we've covered godly leaders, personal conduct within the church, and then public conduct, those with outsiders. The false teachers are concerned with division, rivalry. They're just rustling up not good stuff. What should Christians be doing? They should be lovers of peace, obedience, unity. See, godly leaders, godly relationships in the church, godly relationships outside of church. This is what Paul commands Titus to do. He says, put things in order. And so then we come to verses 12 through 15. And in these final few verses, Paul concludes with a few logistical notes that might seem um, not related. But Paul hasn't forgotten his main thrust. On his mind is still the need to do good works. These aren't just meaningless private words that we get to. These aren't just meaningless names that we don't need to know about. This isn't just an elaborate, sincerely written at the end of the letter. This is Paul bringing it all together and giving them the first step on how to apply all that he has said. Um, If any of you are board game people, I like board games, I know a few of you do. If you open up the box and get that nice new smell right out of the box and you open up the instruction sheet, it might start with something that says, set up. It'll explain how to set up the game and then it'll say, here's the pieces that you need. And it'll explain all the pieces in the box. And then it'll say, rules for gameplay. And then once you get those down, then comes the section that says, starting the game. Once you know the setup, Once you know the pieces, once you know the rules, you know you're ready to start and it's time to start the game. And in many ways, the first three chapters are this. They describe the setup of the church, they describe the pieces at play, and they describe the rules of play. And these final four verses are the starting the game section of all that Paul has said. So if you would like to go ahead and look down at verse 12, we'll be reading those together. Verse 12, when I send Artemis, or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you, Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So we see in verse 12. Let's talk about logistics real quick so we understand what's going on. Verse 12, Paul says, I'm gonna send some guys to you. I'm gonna send either Tychicus, if you say Tychicus, that's fine, either Tychicus or Artemis, and when they show up, I want you to come to me and meet me at Nicopolis. Now, Titus is in Crete, Paul is not at Nicopolis, but he's planning to be there at some point in the future. And Nicopolis is a a few hundred miles north of Crete on the western coast of of Greece. And so Paul's planning to winter there, and he wants Titus to be there with him. Now wintering is is maybe a a strange term for us. We don't necessarily talk like that. I winter where I summer and where I fall and where I spring. I do it all in the same place. But wintering, uh, in the first century and for most of human history, travel during winter was incredibly treacherous. It was dangerous, and at absolute best, it was just miserable. Um, There was no pavement, no automobiles, everything was on foot or in a wagon, um, and it was was treacherous during the harsh winter weather. Um, And the open seas, most of the time you, you did long distance on boats, the seas were no friend to you during the winter. You see this in Acts 27. Um, Paul gets on a ship bound for Rome from Jerusalem, and the crew decides to try and push through instead of wintering in a port. 
and the title of that section is called Paul's Shipwreck. Traveling during the winter months is incredibly dangerous, and so Paul is planning to spend a few months riding out through cold weather until it gets warm again and can move on, and he wants Titus to meet him there. And so he says, I'm gonna send to you either Tychicus or Artemis. Not quite sure who yet, that's to be determined in the future. Now these two uh, men, we know nothing about the one and a lot about the other. Artemis is, is talked about nowhere else in the New Testament. But Tychicus, we learn quite a great deal about. Um, he's described in Acts 20 alongside Paul ministering. Um, it seems he was with Paul in his imprisonment and during when he wrote 2 Timothy. It seems he was the letter carrier of what we call Ephesians and Colossians. Um, he was an incredibly faithful uh, servant. Uh, in, in fact, Paul describes him in Colossians as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Essentially, he's a man who, whose experience and his ability command respect as an apostolic delegate. He's a man who commands respect. And so we can probably assume that Artemis is of similar quality to him. So he says, I'm going to send one of those to you to replace you so that you can come to me. And then he goes on and he says, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Now again, we have two men and we know nothing about the one and a lot about the other. Zenos, the most we know about him is he's a lawyer. But whether he's a uh, lawyer in terms of, of the Roman law or the Jewish law it remains to be unseen. Um, but Apollos, we know quite a lot about. Uh, you can read a lot of his story in Acts. He's a Jew from Alexandria. He's described as a very eloquent man. He's described as a man who, who he's a great preacher. He's a great speaker. Everyone loves to listen to him because he speaks so well. He's a great evangelist in that sense. He's also well-versed in the scriptures, it says. He knows his Bible better than the back of his hand. Uh, I don't know if any of us know the back of our hand very well, but he knows the scriptures really well. And so he, again, is a faithful servant and minister alongside Paul. And so, again, we can assume Zenos is a probably similar caliber. Um, now, these two were with Paul, and they are probably the letter carriers of what we have in front of us, the letter to Titus. And this is a waypoint on their journey to some point in the future um, that we don't quite know where that is, um, but they made a pit stop here to deliver this letter, see Titus, and be on their way. And Paul says, send them on their way. Do your best to send them on their way. See that they lack nothing. Now, if Paul would have just skipped right there and, and went on to say, grace be with you all, everyone here greets you, he says, someone's coming to replace you, these guys in front of you, send them on their way, grace be with you, uh, the end. That would have been a really fine ending. That would have been a really wonderful way to sum up this letter, um, to conclude it, very nice. Um, but that would have missed a vital opportunity. That would have missed an incredibly great teachable moment. And Paul knows this. And so he adds this line in verse, verse 14. And it, it reiterates this thing that he has been drilling over and over again. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. This has been the theme over and over and over again. Do good works. Let's just see what all he said about this so far. Back in chapter one, very first verses, he says, godliness accords with the knowledge of truth. He goes on, he says, leaders in the church must be lovers of good. He says the false teachers, they deny knowing Christ by their works. They are unfit for any good work. And he talks about relationships in the church and he says, older women teach what is good. And then he gives it a gospel foundation when he says, um, show yourself to be a model in all, in all good works because of what Christ has done for you. And then we get to chapter three. And in the public setting, he says, make yourself ready for every good work. And again, he, he grounds it in the gospel. And he says, because of what Christ has done, devote yourself to good works. And now again, he ends. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. The main point of Paul's letter and the main point of these verses is this. Earnestly devote yourself 
to good works together. Earnestly devote yourself to good works together. This is the main point of all that he has been saying. And I think what we learned from these, these four verses, we can see three ways in which we can apply this. Paul offers three ways in which to respond to his letter. Three ways to do good works, or three aspects of doing good works. And so that's what I want to spend the bulk of our time on. So three components, and all of these are embedded in the main point for you that really like to take notes on points. First, because the gospel is an urgent matter, therefore, we should do good works immediately. Do good works immediately. Do not sleep on doing good. See, Paul has just expended an, a large amount of energy and a large amount of ink explaining the task at hand to uh, the Cretan Christians. And the worst thing that could happen at this point is for them to look at it and say, wow, that's a really good idea. We should do that. Let me put it on my schedule for next week. And then go on with their day and not do anything. The worst thing that could happen is to say, that's interesting, and not do anything with it. Procrastination in this sense is, is the enemy of godliness. They need to apply what they have been taught. They need to do something with it. They need to respond with action. And Paul, being a, a good teacher, doesn't give them the opportunity to sleep on his words. He provides them with an opportunity right away. See, he says to Titus, do your best to, spend, to uh, speed Zenos and Apollos on their way. Also, let our people learn. Basically saying, what you're doing there, let our people learn to do good works at the same time. Look, what you're doing here, they need to learn to do that. And so, know how to help cases of urgent need. Paul says in this letter, devote yourself to good works. The people say, how? He says, look at the two people right in front of you that have a need and fill it. And that is a good work. And you will start applying this right away. You see, Satan never sleeps, as we read, um, or we sang in our one song, he's the tempter. He, he never stops tempting. Satan never sleeps. Your sin, sinful tendencies never slumber. The world never gives you a moment to take a breath. See, this is why the Christian life is so often compared to a river um, that you're swimming upstream in. And every moment that you spend floating is a moment that you spend losing ground. Now, every culture uh, is different, and Crete was exceptionally dark, but every culture is a rushing torrent of a river that you're swimming upstream against. If you stop for a moment or hesitate for a moment or procrastinate to apply what you have learned, you will lose ground. See, every, every week that you leave here, and you take your sermon notes and you just throw them away never to look at them again, you're losing ground. Every day that you close your Bible after your morning devotions to not think about it again until the next morning, you're losing ground. See, I was sitting in uh, my basement the other day, our living room is in our basement, and I was sitting in my favorite chair, and we have drop ceiling in our basement, and I, I happened to look up and I noticed that the ceiling tile right above me was round. Um, the rest of them are flat, and it was closer to me. I also knew that right above that ceiling tile was the bathtub on our first floor. And so I put two and two together, and I realized there's a puddle of water in the ceiling tile right above me. Now, what would you say? What would my wife have said if I said, wow, that's really interesting, and then looked back at my book and kept on reading? She would have said, what are you doing? You need to get out of the chair, you need to do something about that. You see, for me to just have remained there, what would have happened? I would have gotten wet, would have made a big mess, I would have ruined a book. Then <laughs> That's devastating. Um, the knowledge of the situation, the knowledge at hand about that ceiling tile demanded a response, it demanded action right away, and to delay, I was gonna lose ground. Um, I was gonna lose a, a rug. Every moment that you delay, you lose ground. When you look at God's word, God's word demands a response. This letter to Titus is for us, and it demands action and response. As we've read through these chapters, if you have felt the finger of conviction press on you when it says, do not be arrogant or quick-tempered, don't wait for that to pass like heartburn. 
respond to it. Go and settle the account with the person you're angry with. Go and reconcile with God. Do not delay on that. If you feel the finger of conviction press on you when it says, Christians should be pure. You go home today and you build up those defenses so that tomorrow they'll stand. If you feel conviction and the weight of it when the word says, be disciplined, be self-controlled. You make the changes today so that tomorrow they'll last. Tomorrow is not the day to wait for. Parents, you have children that are looking to you for an example. Tomorrow is not the day to figure out what it means to be a godly parent or to start applying that. Today is the day that your children need a godly example. Tomorrow is not the day to wait for this. Today is the day to apply what you have learned. Another place in the New Testament that so often uh, we go to when we think about doing the word is in James. James commands us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. So in James, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, which you deceive yourself if you do. If you only hear it and you don't apply it, you're deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently in the mirror at himself. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the people who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no mere hearer of the word, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. When you look at scripture, you know what you're supposed to do. You know what God requires of you. So do it and do not delay. Tomorrow is not the day to wait to apply this. Do good works immediately. Don't sleep on doing good. And if you do this, there's a promise that comes with it. You'll be a light for the gospel and you'll bear eternal fruit. Second, so we said the gospel is an urgent matter. It requires us to do good works immediately. It is also a priority matter, very related. So it demands that we do good works diligently. Spare no effort in godliness. Spare no effort for the sake of godliness. You see, immediacy and diligence, they're really good friends. Uh, much in the same way that a sprinter needs a quick start out of the blocks. I don't know how many of you did track and field, but you need a, you need a quick start out of the blocks if you want to have any hope of winning the race. But a sprinter who's only quick off the blocks, but then jogs down his lane, has no chance of winning. In the same way, you need to be off the blocks, you need to be immediate in your application of the word, and you need to be diligent in it, day after day. See, I think many of us probably think about the apostolic era, and we think about Paul, we think about the apostles, and we say, wow, ministry must have been so easy for them. You know, they had all this stuff. You know, they had the spirit telling them where to go. They had angels opening closed doors for them. They had visions. God was telling them exactly where he wanted them to go. We think about you know, cases like Philip and the Ethiopian or uh, Peter and Cornelius, and we say, wow, if only that was what was happening here, ministry would be a breeze. Um, we think, Paul, how, how could it be anything other than zealous? I mean, look, look at what the man experienced. Christ and the risen Lord appeared before him on the road and taught him for three years. How could he ever not be zealous about proclaiming this and teaching people? That's a misplaced understanding about, about the apostolic era. The apostles had to work for it. Paul had to be diligent. It was tough. If you've ever read Romans, you know. It's, godliness is not easy for Paul. It is a struggle. It's a slugfest trying to get through this. Um, he says, I toil and my flesh is against me. Godliness is not easy for Paul either. He had to work, he had to plan, he had to discipline himself, and he knew that ultimately fruitfulness in ministry is because of diligence from our perspective. Fruitfulness in ministry requires long-term diligence in doing it, and this is true for all Christians. This isn't just true for the apostles. This is true for every one of us in this room. You see, Paul commands Titus. He says, do your best. Do your absolute best to come to me. And then do your best to send these guys on their way. In other words, the word he's using here basically says, spare no effort in doing this. Spare no ounce of energy, no time, no nothing. 
make every effort to come to me and to send these guys on their way. Do your absolute best. And then he commands of the Cretans, he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Devote themselves to good works. Now Paul's exhortation to the Cretans here, this word that he uses, to devote themselves, is the same word he uses in Romans 12 when he talks about the one who leads. And it's the same word that he uses in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy to say the one who rules, talking about elders and husbands in the household. See, what he's saying is, you Christian, you need to lead in your personal holiness. You need to take the lead to take care of your personal holiness. You must rule your, for your godliness. You must rule over it. They need to take it personally. They need to recognize that this is a task that requires diligence to do. Um, in the same way that pastors lead the church, in the same way that husbands lead in the home, so every Christian is responsible for leading their personal holiness and godliness to do good works. So let me ask you a couple self-evaluation questions as we think about this, this point. So consider these for a moment. Think how you would actually answer them. First, what are you preparing for? What are your current preparations preparing you for? See, Paul diligently planned for the gospel. It was hard work. We see him at work here. I guarantee you he was on his knees every morning, and in the afternoon he was hard in, in the drawing room figuring out where he was going to go next and planning out all the details for the journey. And we see him doing that right here, planning out personnel and equipment needs. What are you preparing for? How are you preparing for good gospel works? How are you preparing yourself and your future for gospel ministry and your own personal holiness? How does your present day preparations prepare you for the future? Secondly, are you giving your best? Ask yourself that, are you doing your best? Are you giving your best? Are you sparing any effort in what you are doing? In your daily devotions, in your, in your evangelism, in whatever you are doing, are you giving your absolute best? Young life leaders, MC leaders, work Bible study leaders, can you honestly say, I have spared no effort, I have done my best and my due diligence to make sure I am doing what needs to be done? Can you say that you've demonstrated courtesy to those at work, can you say, I have, been at, I have done my best to be kind and charitable and courteous with all of my coworkers? Can you say, I have done my best to be the best neighbor I can be? I have done my best to be the best Christian on the block that I can be. In all of your relationships with your friends, with your family, with coworkers, with all of them, have you done your best? When you sit here on a Sunday and you see someone in the row beside you, crying, and you get up to leave at the end, and you walk out that door, can you walk out that door and say, I did my best to make sure that every need was met in this room? Can you say that you did your best? Can you say, I, I have left no need in this room? And you're essentially saying this before the throne room of God, as we just sang recently. Can you stand before the throne of God and say, God, I did everything, I did, I did my best. I know my best isn't perfect, but I did the best that I could do with what I had. I have spared no effort to do good works for your name. And see, this is really the, the descriptor of, of what we're talking about here. What is the threshold? How can you say, well, what, what should my best be? What is the marker? We really like standards. Well, the New Testament marker is in a manner worthy of God. John writes in, in um, one of his letters, send, send out, you know, support those who are, who are laboring on the field, support missionaries in a manner worthy of God. Paul writes, yeah, walk in a manner worthy of God, live your life, do the things that you're doing in a manner worthy of God, in a manner that it would be acceptable to God. He writes in Colossians, he says, work for the Lord not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. And eating and drinking and everything you do, do it in a manner worthy of God. Do good works diligently. 
Spare no effort for godliness. Do this and you will bear gospel light and eternal fruit, I promise you. So we've said the gospel we must, uh, is urgent, so it demands that we do good works immediately. The gospel is a priority, so it demands that we do good works diligently. And then thirdly, the gospel is a church matter. And so therefore we should do good works corporately, together. Give yourself, give yourselves to one another's needs. Do good works together. See, as you, as you read these final remarks, uh, it becomes absolutely plain um, that everything Paul is saying happens in a community. You can't do anything that he's talking about apart from a community of faith. A lot of people are named here. Like I said, this is one of those passages we try to avoid out of fear of pronunciation. There's a lot of names here, a lot of people. We have Paul, the author. We have Titus, the, the primary recipient. Artemis and Tychicus. And we have Zenus um, and Apollos. But we also have references to a lot more people. He says, let our people, all the Cretans. He says, all those with me, all those with you. Grace be with you all. This is a huge community that we're talking about here. Everything Paul is saying must be done in a community setting. Um, not a single one of us can live out the Christian life on our own. The Christian life needs no lone wolves. Christian life does not need you to be off on your own a mountain man out there pioneering for, for the sake of yourself. We do this together. We're a church. And so the gospel demands that we do good works together. You see, um, it's only in a community setting. It's only in a community setting like this that discipleship can actually happen. You see, when you have a diversity of roles, as we see in chapter one with leaders, those who lead and, and those who follow, you have a diversity of stations in life. You have older men and older women, younger men and younger women, husbands, wives, children, grandparents, a, a diversity of roles and a diversity of stations. And it's because of this that discipleship can happen. Um, a phrase that I, I really like to use is seasoned saints. See, when we're in a community, it's an opportunity for the seasoned saints, those with experience, those who have gone through it before, to minister and train up the younger generation. See, it's only in a community setting that discipleship happens. And so good works are an opportunity for discipleship in the church. You see, even in this passage, this, this is just what's so amazing about this passage. Paul is so brilliant in how he's employing this, verse 14 and how he's signing off on this letter because he's providing an opportunity for discipleship and he's modeling it. There's so many layers happening in just these few verses. First, you have, most apparently, Titus and the Cretans. Titus is to send these men out as best as he can so that they lack nothing. And he says, let, let the Cretans watch, watch you do that. Let them learn to do that. Let them participate. You know, let them provide the needs too. They're gonna do this at the same time you do so that they learn good works and know how to meet urgent needs and so that they're fruitful. But if you take another step back too, you see Paul is discipling Titus. Um, Titus isn't off on his own. Paul has been ministering to Titus in the past, and here, how Paul is meant to send these two men, that's how, Paul, or how Titus is meant to send them, that's how Paul probably sent them too. And he says, I, I'm sending these guys to you to fill your needs, I want you to come and fill my needs. I want you to do as you have seen me do. I know we could extract that and show other layers of discipleship, but we'll just stick with those two. You need a community for there to be discipleship. And so good works done corporately are an op opportunity for discipleship. Um, everything really in the Christian life is an opportunity for discipleship. Everything you do this week is an opportunity for discipleship. And we're not doing MCs right now, but even park nights are an opportunity for this. But during MCs, MC is an amazing time for discipleship when those in different roles, those in different occupations, those in different stations in life can come together and teach one another and train one another to do good works. There's Bible studies that happen all through the week, some with this church, some with other churches, some with, your, with coworkers. Those are a wonderful opportunity to disciple one another and train one another up to do good works. All of life together is an opportunity for discipleship. And so, 
if you have experience, if you're what I call a seasoned saint, involve the younger generation in what you're doing. Don't be off on your own. Involve others in what you're doing. Show them what it looks like to be a godly husband or a godly wife. Show them what it looks like to do your taxes to the glory of God. Show them what it looks like to do evening devotions to the glory of God. Show them whatever it is that you are doing, how it can be done in a manner that honors God. Those who are younger, the younger men and the younger women, seek that out. Learn from those who are older than you. I guarantee you, you don't know everything. Um, Seek those out who are older than you and learn and practice what they do so that you learn to do good works. Do not think that you can be a lone range Christian. But it's also, so we said that it's only in community that we can do discipleship, but it's also only through a community of faith that missions flourish in the church. And it's because it takes all of God's people to support God's mission. Therefore, when you devote yourself to living out the gospel um, and meeting cases of urgent need as we see here, the gospel goes wide in missions. When you disciple, it goes deep. And when you devote yourself to doing good works in a corporate setting and meeting the needs of Christians all all over the place, the gospel goes wide in missions. See, even Paul couldn't do do things on his own. We usually think of him as, as this, this man, this great man. Um, but he needed people. The letters, his letters are full of his desire for need. Titus couldn't be isolated. He needed help. Zenos and Apollos, they couldn't get on their way without the Cretan Christians. They needed support. And so this opportunity for good works presented a beautiful opportunity to support missions, to meet urgent needs. See, the the term that he uses there, urgent needs, so as to help cases of urgent need, implies urgent needs on account of a relationship. It's because of our relationship that this is an urgent need. It's because that we are friends, we are are related in this great family of God, that this is an urgent need. We must be eager to meet the needs of others. And so, in that case, you'll, you'll support missions. You'll support the work of God all over the place. Um, for example, we recently had the Romaine family here. Um, some of you remember them. Some of, some of you never had the chance to meet them. Uh, they were a missionary family over here from Spain on account of their son who had cancer. And this church did a wonderful job of, of supporting them. But I want to tell you that the Romains, there will be another Romaine family at some point. There are Romaine families now. There will be more who, who need needs or who have needs that you can fill. There will be more who are suffering. There will be more who have cases of urgent need who are suffering and you can learn to do good works by meeting those cases of urgent need and so being fruitful. Keep your eye out for these. And when you're you're meeting needs, roll out the red carpet. If you go on to another church, Make sure that your pastors, make sure that any missionary that comes to see you, make sure that traveling speakers roll out the red carpet for them. Show them how great of an occupation it is that they do and that you want to meet their needs so that they have no need left, that nothing is lacking for them. So we saw the gospel when we are in community it's the only time that we can, can really do discipleship. We saw it's, it's an opportunity to really be fruitful in missions. Um, so there's a diversity of role, a diversity of, of stations, and a diversity of places. But when we do uh, gospel ministry, when we pursue good works together as a church, it's also an opportunity to demonstrate uncommon unity in the gospel. Only a community of faith can demonstrate this. Only a community of faith can demonstrate the uncommon gospel unity that comes. Um, see, Paul started this letter. He says, Titus, my true child in the faith. And then he ends. He says, grace be with you all. Greet those who love us in the faith. Cretan culture was riddled with, with division, as we saw. It's absolutely riddled with strife, fighting. But Paul Paul says this gospel brings us together unlike anything else. This gospel is a demonstration of uncommon unity around the person of Jesus. The false teachers, the bad doctrines threatening the church, they only encourage division, but the gospel generates unity. And so think about the witness that the Cretans have when they, unlike everyone else on the island, 
are together. Think about the testimony that Zenos and Apollos have when they get to their destination and say, guess what? The Christians at Crete, they are the ones that sent us here. They provided our needs. That's, that's crazy. How could Cretans care about someone else? Well, it's because of this uncommon unity that we have around the one faith in Jesus. This unity demonstrates the power of the gospel unlike anything else. Um, I know that even when I'm doing new member interviews occasionally, I, I love doing those, and I always ask people, why do you want to join our church? And 98% of the time, the response I get is, because the community here is just so wonderful. I see people that love one another. I see unity in this body, and I want a piece of it. See, unity is attractive because it's unlike anything else in this world. The gospel unity that you demonstrate when you love your brothers and sisters in Christ and meet their urgent needs, that's powerful. That's attractive, and that draws people in. This is what drew people in in the first century was the attractive power of the local church that loved one another unlike anyone else. It's all about Jesus. And because it's all about Jesus, it's all about one person. And because it's all about one person, it doesn't matter what we disagree about. We can all come together around Jesus and demonstrate an uncommon unity. When I was thinking about this passage, I was reminded of um, Matthew 25, when ironically, well, not really ironically, but Jesus is speaking on end times. And he says, when we get to the end, um, what's it gonna be like? And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, I guess you're right, and he will place the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did this happen? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When were you thirsty and we gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison? We don't remember that. And Jesus says, when you did, and when you did, um, well, sorry. And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, so did it to me. As you did this to any of the least of the brothers and the sisters, so you did to me. When we meet the urgent needs of the brothers and sisters around us in this room, we're meeting, we're, we're filling this up in Christ. We are doing this as if to Christ himself. We are meeting the needs as of Christ. So meet the needs, look for urgent needs and fill them. Do good works cooperatively. And through that we experience discipleship, we participate in missions, and we demonstrate uncommon gospel unity. Do this and you will bear gospel fruit. Now these are the first stepping stones, Paul says. He says, do the gospel. So let's review real quick. He says, the gospel's urgent. Do it, do good works um, earnestly, urgently, immediately. He says the gospel is a priority matter, so do it diligently discipline yourself for this. And he says, it's, it's a matter of the church. You can't do this without people. Do it cooperatively. Earnestly devote yourself to good gospel works together. This is the command that Paul leaves us with in Titus. Now, if you're here and you would not call yourself a Christian, this command is not for you. If you would not call yourself a Christian, do not earnestly devote yourself to good works. Do not be immediate in good works. Do not be diligent in good works. Do not be cooperative in good works because it will do absolutely nothing. Paul says just above this that Christ did not save us on account of our works. And so you being earnest and diligent and cooperative in anything means nothing. 
Do not be earnest in doing good works. Instead, be earnest in laying hold of Christ. Be earnest in seeking him out. Be diligent in finding him and be, seek him exclusively. Be cooperative in as far as he draws you in. He saves us on account of his own mercy, richly provided for us. Your good works do nothing. Um, If you're not a Christian, do this. Seek Christ. If you're a Christian, leave here, do good works. That's the two things that we have before us. If you're not a Christian, lay hold of Christ. If you're a Christian, earnestly devote yourself to good works. Now, some of you might hear all of this and say, That's, everything you've said sounds really tough. I don't know if I can do that. That sounds like a measure too high for me. How am I supposed to do that? Well, the good news is that for both the non-Christian and the Christian, it's a matter of grace. That's where, where he ends. Paul says, grace be with you all. To the one who is earnest in devoting himself to good works, it's a matter of grace. God's grace sustains you. And if you are urgently seeking Christ, your good works will do nothing. It's only a matter of grace. So come to him with empty, empty hands, because that's all he needs. So what do you do here? Respond to Paul's writing. Repent, believe, and trust in Christ, or go out and earnestly devote yourself to good works. And remember that it's all a part of grace. This is why Paul says, these are some of my favorite verses as of late, he says in Colossians 1:29, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Earnestly devote yourself to good works. Do your best to meet urgent needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. And remember that all things are a matter of grace. Let's pray.